News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, we know that relations between Canada and China right now are not very good. Now, China has expressed interest in joining an 11-country Pacific Rim trading bloc partnership. But will it happen Can Canada do anything to express its dissatisfaction with the relationship that they've been having? Let's talk more about the political ins and outs of this situation. Joining us now is Guy Saint-Jacques, a senior fellow for China Institute at the University of Alberta. Thank you for joining us this morning. Well, thank you for the invitation. Is this surprising that China would want to join this trading bloc? Well, they had given hints going back... uh, a few years ago, that they, they might want to, to join eventually. And I think that they are t- uh, trying to take advantage of the fact that uh, when uh, Donald Trump was president of the United States, he withdrew the U.S. from the uh, negotiations. But when you look at uh, the situation in China and what is uh, required uh, in terms of uh, opening uh, your markets, uh, it's clear that they are not ready uh, to join at this stage. So is this then just not going to happen? Because there's an awful lot, some of the rules that you just mentioned there that they would have to do, such as what, is it separation of state industries? Like, they just don't qualify. Well, and and on this, I think, you know, uh, I would say that uh, eventually we, we should welcome uh, China, but they will have to change their uh, behavior because when you, you look at the way that they have treated Canada or Australia and using uh, trade as a weapon, uh, you will recall that after the arrest of Mrs. Meng, uh, we lost $4.5 billion in exports in uh, 2019, uh, mostly canola, uh, pork. Uh, Australia now is a victim of uh, similar sanctions, and it's more dramatic in the case of Australia because uh, one-third of its trade is with uh, China. The other thing also, uh, if you look at the uh, conditions that have been set for uh, China to join the World Trade Organization in 2001, uh, uh, it is clear that they have not met uh, the, the commitments. That In fact, they have been given a free ride uh, to some extent because they announced many times that they were going to open their markets, but uh, this has been done in a very uh, uh, gradual way, and there's no uh, level playing field. Uh, in fact, uh, uh, it remains a lot more difficult for uh, foreign companies to do business in China than it is for Chinese companies to do business in, in our countries. And I think for these reasons, if uh, uh, China is serious, they, they would have to make very strong commitments. And in my view, it's unlikely that uh, they would be ready to do that. Uh, if you look at the changes that uh, President Xi Jinping has made to uh, since he, he became uh, president of the country, uh, they have backed off from making uh, economic reforms, and instead they have uh, put more emphasis on state-owned enterprises. And I think uh, I see this as uh, uh, the, the request to join. I see this as uh, uh, mostly uh, political in nature. And and why do you say that? Well, I, they knew also that Taiwan was going to uh, ask to join, and uh, there is this uh, 
big uh, chess game going on right now about uh, what China is going to do with Taiwan. We we have seen that they they are uh, uh, putting up a lot of military pressure on Taiwan with uh, uh, flights of air, record flights of uh, airplanes, uh, military airplanes in uh, Taiwan uh, space, and I think they wanted to send a message, especially to their main trade partners that are part of the CPTPP, uh, which is uh, <clears throat> beware if you decide to move ahead with Taiwan, there, uh, there would be consequences for you. Right. But the, the uh, let's remember also that when President Xi went to Davos back in 2017, he portrayed China as the champion of uh, uh, free trade, and of course, when you, you have lived in China and when you look at the situation, uh, <clears throat> it's far from uh, being the case. They've tipped their hand on that, though, haven't they, Guy? Because as you point out, with what happened with Meng Wanzhou, they made it very clear the lengths with which they're willing to go to protect Chinese businesses, and that includes levers like trade sanctions. So if that's the case, why would any nation want them in a trade agreement? Well, I, in fact, I think that, uh, you know, we we have learned a lot on uh, China's behavior in the last three years since mm-hmm. the arrest of Mrs. Meng. And they, they had used hostage diplomacy uh, a number of times. In fact, there a study uh, published by the Australian Enterprise Institute uh, recently noted that uh, in the last uh, that, uh, 10 years, well, from 2010 to 2020, China used coercive action 157 times against 27 countries and the EU. And, th- and that means that it's either using trade as a weapon, you know, imposing unjustified sanctions, like we saw in the case of uh, Canadian canola, or they, they take people as hostage. And I think uh, for Western countries now, uh, we, we are starting to see uh, them getting together to oppose bullying tactics uh, by China. Uh, Canada was behind this uh, declaration against arbitrary detention uh, in state-to-state relations that was adopted by uh, 65 countries in uh, February. I think also that we can counter uh, China uh, and its use of of trade as a weapon. Uh, When you look at some commodities that uh, China imports uh, in large numbers like uh, barley, uh, canola, soya, uh, coal or iron. Uh, there are not that many countries that supply these commodities. And I think as a start, Canada, Australia, and the United States could uh, uh, jointly announce that if one of the three is victim of uh, such uh, unjustified sanctions by China, the other two promise not to increase their exports beyond their historical share of the China market. Uh, and that would send a very powerful message to China because uh, so far they have been good at uh, dividing to uh, conquer. Uh, and uh, uh, the other thing also that uh, we have to do is uh, to ensure that the uh, World Trade Organization is uh, uh, functional again. And for that, we have to convince Washington to uh, uh, proceed with the nomination of arbiters to the various panels, uh, which means that in the future, if China were to take uh, unjustified action, uh, countries could launch action immediately at the WTO. And if you put all those measures together, it would send a very powerful message and uh, hopefully would force China to change its uh, behavior. 
fascinating right now to watch. Guy Saint-Jacques, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, and have a good day. That is Guy Saint-Jacques, Senior Fellow for China Institute at the University of Alberta. So China's expressed interest in joining the Trans-Pacific Partnership, and a lot of trade analysts are saying what Canada should do is vocally oppose this. This pact also includes Australia, Brunei, Chile, Malaysia, Mexico, New Zealand, Peru, Singapore, and Vietnam. It's going to be interesting to watch what happens in the next year or so with what has changed with China's relationship with other countries in the world. This is Mornings with Simi. This week, the new reality on Global is looking at this question in a different way, asking, was it worth it for women? Joining us now to talk more about this is Mike Armstrong, Global National's Quebec correspondent. Mike, thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you. Good morning. Now, let's talk about what's going on in the new reality this week. So civilians were often caught in the middle of the war here. Not a perfect situation. How did what was going on during the war compare to what is happening now? Yeah, the woman we spoke to say it's been rough basically for years. You know, there there was fear leaving the house. Things weren't always safe. They were caught in the middle of a, a violent, violent conflict. But what we did hear over and over was that things were better. And so in this documentary, we spoke to a couple of women. Uh, we've hidden their identity, um, but they're in Kabul today uh, in hiding. And we spoke to a woman who escaped sort of last minute on one of those uh, flights during the Airbridge operation. But what we're hearing and what we're seeing already is that there's a loss of freedoms um, in terms of education. Girls can't go to school after grade six. In terms of clothing, um, the burqa hasn't been brought back completely, but there's a much more rigid control over what women can wear. And in terms of liberty of movement, um, the Taliban has brought back the Mahran, which is a, a male escort. Uh, women are not allowed to leave home without a male uh, relative as an escort. So when you speak to women and you hear that they can't work, they can barely leave the house, and what we heard was that they spend their days crying, you do get, an, you do get the impression things are very rough right now. Oh, that is terrible. Is, it, is this the generation of women that you know, didn't grow up under the Taliban and this is now what they're coping with? That's exactly right. You know, it's quite interesting. The last time the Taliban took over, they took over a country that was coming out of the Russian occupation and then a brutal, brutal civil war. And so that's the country they took over. This time they're coming into a country that has, where women have known freedoms for two decades. You know, one of the women we spoke to called it um, the blossoming, you know, the 20 years between Taliban reigns, where women had jobs as uh, police officers, judges, uh, you name it, they did, the, they did those jobs. So there's an expectation that it'll probably be a more difficult country for the Taliban to control. And, you know, we've probably seen an example of that with the protests that have gone on. Uh, there were more in, those, in the first couple of weeks after the Taliban came back, but there are still some popping up. Um, but take my word for it. There were no protests under the Taliban the first time around. Um, that there's a sense that this is a different Afghanistan today. So interesting. Where can we learn more? Tell me about the new reality. Yeah, well, it's going to be on this weekend, uh, 7 o'clock on Global News. We will check that out. Mike, thank you. Thank you very much. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, we've been hearing in the news this morning that there is good jobs news for Canada from the month of September. Lots of jobs added above what economists had been predicting and all full time. But what about British Columbia? Well, let's find out. Joining us now is Ravi Kailan, Minister of Employment, Jobs and Economic Recovery. Good morning. 
Good morning, Simi. Thanks for having me. All right, let's hear it. How did BC do? Well, we, uh, again, continue to lead the country in, uh, in our economic recovery. Uh, it's uh, positive news. Again, it's been a trend line we've seen here in BC. We have one of the highest uh, job recovery rates in the country, and we have uh, 1.5% higher employment now than we did uh, prior to the pandemic. So, so things are heading in the positive direction. We're not, we're not quite 100% there, but uh, it's starting to look uh, like it's uh, heading in the right direction. Right. So the unemployment rate here in BC falling to what, 5.9%? Yep, we're down to 5.9%, and, uh, and uh, you know, we've gained a, a significant amount of jobs, uh, more in the part-time this month. Last month, we saw about, uh, you know, 17,000 full-time job gains, uh, so it was last month was more full-time. This month is a little bit more part-time, but, you know, there's, there is a connection to uh, people going back to school, and, you know, all the employment that we gained this month were, was women. Uh, which is very interesting. Yeah, that is very interesting. So what sectors are we talking about? Uh, it was pretty widespread, actually. Uh, we've seen gains in educational services, gains in, uh, in uh, manufacturing. Uh, pretty much every sector saw a little bit of gains, uh, so it was pretty spread out. Are there areas where you, there's still kind of clearly some work that needs to be done? Uh, I think the hospitality and uh, tourism sector continues to have some challenges, and uh, that can be expected. You know, we have still don't have international tourism back to anywhere near uh, pre-pandemic levels, but many other sectors are doing very well, and uh, and, and that that continues to help uh, uh, the employment situation. So, even though it's been a couple of months since we allowed you know U.S. tourists to come back, and a month now since we've allowed international tourists to come back, are we not seeing a big a, a rebound in that sector? Well, we certainly are seeing an increase. Uh, we were at the legislature last week, and uh, a lot of American tourists, uh, and uh, you know the the folks at the dining room of the legislature were talking about how busy it's been uh, with people coming. So, but it's still not uh, anywhere near the levels that we're used to, but we have started to see an increase. Uh, and certainly when uh, people hear that we are almost nine out of 10 people have been vaccinated, it gives people comfort. And that's what they have been hearing uh, at the legislature uh, for the folks that have arrived. What about migration to BC from the other provinces? Are we seeing an increase in that? Well, it's, uh, it's positive. I mean, uh, this is... Uh, Right now, we are seeing the largest migration of people moving to B.C. for 28 years. Uh, so, you know, when there's positive news and the economy is doing well, we're starting to see people come over here for opportunities. Of course, we have a labor shortage, uh, and uh, we're hearing from employers that we need more people. Um, and that migration pattern helps us fill some of those uh, critically important jobs. Right, but we still there must still be work to do. Like, if there's something that you could improve for next month when we have this conversation, what would it be? Well, it, there's just still a lot of unknowns uh, with the pandemic. And, uh, and so our hope is that things continue to go in that direction. We know that there still is uh, impacts to employment when it comes to Indigenous communities. Uh, we know there's still, uh, although we're doing better for employment now than we were pre-pandemic uh, for women in particular, um, you know, pre-pandemic wasn't really a bar that I think anyone should aspire to. So we need to be better and we need to ensure that wages go up. And we have seen wages go up, in fact, steadily over the last five years. Wages have started to increase. Uh, I think we're number three in, in the country, which is good for uh, working families. All right. Well, thanks very much for your time this morning.
Yeah, thanks for having me, Sydney. Stay safe. You too. That's Ravi Kale on Minister of Employment and Jobs, Economic Recovery, talking about the jobs numbers just released from StatsCan this morning for the month of September. BC doing well, 5.9%. That's a drop from the 6.2% in August, but still lots of places out there that could use some more workers. If you want to weigh in, Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Oh, I love this news this week, and we're going to learn more about it right now. The news that there is a largely unknown type of orca called the Outer Coast Killer Whale. This has caught the attention of researchers at the University of British Columbia. So what are we learning about them, and why Why didn't we really know more about them before now? Well, joining us now is Josh McInnes, who's the lead author of the study and marine mammal researcher at UBC. Josh, thanks for being here. Hey, thanks for having me. How did we not know about these or know very much about these outer coast transient whales before? Well, it was it's um, very interesting, actually. So these are part of what we call a transient population or transient ecotype of killer whale. Um, they're a genetically distinct population that um, are distributed from southeast Alaska to southern California, and they predate and feed on marine mammals. Uh, so what's really interesting is that the first report for these whales actually came out in uh, two. 2012, and it was based on a habitat assessment by the Canadian government, and they just—it was the only thing that was mentioned was that there was a potential for this outer coast population of killer whales that spend most of their time in the open ocean. So, um, our research at UBC is in collaboration with the U.S. government, uh, NOAA, and uh, we decided that there there needed to be some more information on these killer whales. So we put together a quite a large study to try to locate the outer coast population. So how is the behavior of these whales different from the whales that we do know about? Well, there's a couple of things we noticed in our study. Um, our study uh, took place from 2006 to 2018, um, and we collected over 100,000 photographs. And what we found was through what we call photo identification, where we can recognize these animals based on these photographs of them, um, that some of these individuals of the 150 spend a lot of time in the open ocean uh, compared to some of the transients we see along, transient killers we see along the coast of Vancouver Island. These animals had a preference for deep water systems near canyons. Um, so it seems to be a bit of a different in habitat use. Um, we also see them feeding on different prey, uh, things like elephant seals and oceanic dolphins. So it's, it's kind of a, compared to some of the killer that feed on harbor seals around our area. Right. So is it possible then, Josh, that there's more of them out there that we don't know about? Yeah, so during our study, we cataloged, the, the purpose of the publication was to catalog these whales, and we ended up cataloging 150 of them, um, but each year of the study, we found new animals, um, animals that hadn't been identified before, um, and that really suggests to us that we really do not know what the extent of the population is, uh, and there's likely more. Um, for instance, this year alone, uh, we did discover five new whales that um, had not been seen before or published in any catalog from our colleagues. So this was really exciting for us, and as we build this study, it's uh, it's something new for us to understand more about these charismatic animals. Josh, isn't that kind of like you hit the the jackpot as a marine mammal researcher? <laughs> that this is like the, you can't believe that this actually existed out there. There are whales that nobody knew about. 
Well, you know, like I mean, we knew we knew about them, um, about the population of these outer coasts. But it's it's so neat to see a new pod of killer whales or a new group that hasn't been photographed um, to our knowledge. I mean, the other thing is though, we, we could tell ourselves this is going to be a difficult study because it's the open ocean. It's such a difficult place to access. I mean, the weather can be unpredictable. Uh, it's expensive to get a research ship, um, and you rely on a lot of opportunistic data. So it's, we're not too lucky because it's def- we definitely have our work cut out for us. So, yeah, what do you do now then? Um, so the next steps, this was the first chapter of what we hope to be a, a more inva- advanced and progressive study. Um, this was to answer a question to help with assessing um, killer whales, especially because the study took place mostly south of Washington, where we don't know a lot about killer whales. So this was off Oregon and California. So our next step is to actually start to look at a broader picture of comparing where maybe some of these communities we believe of transient killer whales and how they differ along the coast and are there multiple communities. So that's actually part of the thesis work I'm conducting at UBC, um, which has been in great support with NOAA, um, with the U.S. government. They've been, they've been really interested in this as well. So th- that's kind of the next step. So it, do these whales, do these transient whales like interact with the other killer whales that we know about? Yeah, so that's an, one of the other interesting things we found. Um, the transient killer whales we see off Vancouver Island predominantly, which have increased in occurrence and in their population, which have been kind of termed the coastal assemblage, um, actually do interact occasionally with some of the transients we, we see south of the border um, in Oregon and California. And we actually documented 26 of these whales, um, which we, we've been kind of terming the exotics, uh, coming up from California um, and associating or or traveling with known transient killer whales. So it actually adds a bit of a, a bit of complexity to the study because we're we're now going, well, what population really do they belong to? Yeah. Um, I think it's so dynamic. Yeah. It just it's fascinating to me that there's this whole new area that has just opened up with this discovery that researchers now can can learn about. So many questions. Yeah, I think uh, I think that there's so much we don't know. The killer whales are virtually there's nothing known about them in the open ocean. Uh, the open ocean is, I mean, it's so vast, and these animals can move a hundred kilometers in a day. And just trying to find them is so difficult. So this is what's really exciting. Is we're always learning something about these animals. So you have to go back out there and try to find them. Like, are, are they? Can you track them down now that you know kind of where they are and what they do? You know, we found one study location that they t- is pretty predictable for at least a a fraction of this population, which was in Monterey, California. Uh, that's off the central coast. And um, we found that the, we, what we we're finding is that they spend a lot of time near the continental shelf edge, which drops off into the open ocean. Uh, so it's quite a ways offshore, especially at Vancouver Island. But as you head down the coast, that continental edge starts to narrow. Uh, and what we found is that some of these areas like Monterey, where these submarine canyons are, they it's, more predictable to try to find them, especially the spring off of California as they, they follow gray whale caps up the coast. Wow. Okay. And so they look like the killer whales that we know? Yeah, they absolutely are transient killer whales. That's, um, they are transient. Basically, they look the same as the killer whales that we see here in, in British Columbia, black and white, very similar. Um, it's just that they seem to spend more time uh, in a different area, which is, which is pretty exciting. So the behavior is different, even though they look exactly the same. 
Yeah, and this is one thing that's it's culture. Killer whales have a lot of culture. Um, they're a species that learns. Uh, so, I mean, they've adapted certain behaviors. And, for instance, we have resident and transient killer whales in British Columbia, the, you know, the, the endangered southern residents. And they both are uh, different forms of the same species, uh, but they feed on different prey. They, they don't socialize with each other. Um, they, they, they're almost like they're a complete different species, but they're not, they're part of the same species. So killer whales have this ability, similar to humans in many ways, uh, to be able to have their own abilities to, to form their own little populations. Fascinating stuff. Josh, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. This is Mornings with Simi. Earlier this morning, we were talking about BC jobs and the economy and how things are looking. Well, one particular sector that has tried to power its way through the pandemic and keep on working, of course, is the film and television industry. That industry in BC brought in a whopping almost $3.5 billion for the province in 2020. That's despite all the challenges of COVID-19. So what about 2021, though? How does the industry continue to generate that kind of revenue with everything else that's going on, workplace restrictions, you name it? Well, joining us now for an update is the CEO of Creative BC, Prem Gill. Hi, Prem. Good morning, Simi. Now, how is the industry doing right now? I know there's a lot of testing and everything that goes on. Like, What do you have to do in order to work in the industry, get those productions going right now in BC? Yeah, well, you know, this industry has always been very creative and organized and collaborative and instinctually problem solvers. And I think that is what uh, has, during this COVID period and implementing safety plans and working with public health and WorkSafe BC and ActSafe, that a sequenced, compliant and well-considered worker-focused safety plans is what keeps the industry going. And I think the adaptability of the industry, the ability to scale and work differently, it's kind of always been there, like safety on, you know, large production, small productions is always at the core of things. So we're pretty optimistic that this will be consistent and continue. You know, this sector is is a part of the core of the business in this province now, and I think the people working in it really take it seriously and, and look forward to a, a strong future. Yeah, what is the testing regimen like then for productions? Um, well, I don't work in productions myself, but I think that uh, there's all, every production is unique. There is no requirement based on the general COVID safety plans that were worked on with WorkSafe BC and Creative BC, but generally productions, depending on how what part of production you work in, some productions, I understand, test, you know, once a week, up to three times a week, but also it's all of the other measures, right? It's all the other from, you know, masking to hygiene to maintaining distances. It's all the things that we're all doing in all aspects of our lives that apply to these workplaces as well. And knowing that people are working on pretty restricted time constraints as well when you're, you know, you have, you're making a feature film and it may only be a 70-day production you have to make sure that all those days are safe for everybody to come to work. How busy are we right now compared to pre-pandemic levels? Well, at one point, you know, following the pandemic, so business really came back or people went back to work last year, really into the fall period and coming into early 2021. At one point, we actually had almost 70 productions 
simultaneously shooting, which is unprecedented for us. You know, now we have anywhere, depending on what part of production they're in, if they're in pre-production or actually going into production, anywhere from, you know, 20 to 40 productions. So things remain pretty strong, and we've had, we've seen stage space growth across the lower mainland and the province. Um, you know, studio out in Langley, Martini, Martini Studios is actually building a large purpose-built purpose built space, which is pretty exciting for our jurisdiction, including a back lot which um, is when you see, you know, like a New York set set up that looks like Manhattan, but it's not. Um, We don't really have a lot of that here. So that gives us a lot more leverage as well when we're competing against other jurisdictions. Is there pent-up demand for productions? Because I know it just seems like everybody's filming something right now, right? There's all these new streamers and everything. There must be a lot of demand. Yeah, I mean, I think it's happening globally. Like, if we all think about what we're doing in our own lives and how much content is available to us and the level at which we're consuming and the variety of stories that are out there, I think part of it is there's just so many types of stories that weren't really told before. And uh, producers and storytellers that are being given opportunities that maybe we haven't seen in the past. And and certainly with, you know, we've seen an increase in demand because there's new places to watch content like Netflix and Apple Plus and Amazon. And certainly all those companies have productions that are being made somewhere in BC that are feeding their platforms as well. So how do you see the 2022 shaping up? Is there still a lot of bookings happening? Yeah, there's still a lot of interest. There will hopefully be a lot of series that continue to come back for new seasons. We've seen more feature films in the last year as well coming into BC. We also have the visual effects and animation sector, which because you don't see it on the streets in Vancouver and the Lower Mainland like you do in um, like you do with physical production, that remains strong as well. We're a real large hub for visual effects and animation. If you watch, you know, any major Hollywood feature film that has a lot of visual effects, stay for the credits. You'll see all the BC people that worked on those productions. So, you know, it remains strong. We remain pretty positive, And, you know, the industry remains also focused on adapting more sustainability measures and a focus on equity and inclusion. So, you know, we want to remain competitive, and that takes... Uh, all the people continuing to come together to ensure both uh, safety and quality of production that we're producing. Well, we know there's a labor shortage in so many industries, but how are the creative industries faring with that? Well, I think there's a lot of mirroring to the you know regular world as to what's happening around labor shortages. And, and certainly, I think, um, but there's a lot of uh, opportunities that certainly are being created as well to advise people and help them understand what kind of jobs you can have, particularly in the film and television industry. And we're creating some projects that we're working on with the industry at large, which can actually be a platform where people can come and actually understand what kind of job you can have in the film industry. So, you know, every job I always say that exists in the real world exists in the film and television industry. And certainly um, there's a lot of people working, but, you know, in the coming years, if we continue the levels of production that we have now, there's certainly going to be opportunity for people if you want to be a hairstylist or a carpenter or an electrical engineer or a cook. Those jobs all exist in the film industry. Oh, that's fascinating. All right, Prem, thank you. Thanks, Amy. Prem Gill, CEO of Creative BC, talking about the film and television industry in BC, which despite everything that happened with COVID, like remember, productions were completely shut down. At the in about March of 2020, there they still managed to have a decent 2020 by bringing in about three and a half billion dollars uh, for British Columbia during 2020. So 2021 also very very busy. Not surprising, given as Prem pointed out how much 
how much we're consuming these days, right? There seems like an insatiable need for all of these different streamers and television channels and, and you know, movie channels to have all of this production. It used to be a big movie. It doesn't matter now. Now it's all about the TV series, right? Because we can never see enough of these good TV series. This is Mornings with Simi. Lots to talk about this morning with Health Minister Adrian Dix, who joins us now. Good morning. Good morning, Simi. Uh, first, I want to just get your take on what's been happening. A lot of news about this restaurant in Hope that is defying, you know, the vaccine card situation. Uh, is there a need, do you think, for more enforcement? Would you like to see more enforcement? Well, you're seeing enforcement in in there, in the restaurant in Hope, and uh, and I expect to see more as we go along. Uh, but, you know, the good news about the BC vaccine card is now more than 3.5 million people have got the card. That's a pretty strong endorsement from the people of BC. Uh, it's being used all over the place. I've used it this week. I don't expect you've used it. And I think uh, it's part of the effort that we're making together to make sure that we're safe. And remember, people who don't get, aren't vaccinated, they, they do have alternatives. They can they have takeout. They can watch the Canucks game on TV. But right now we need the BC vaccine card and uh, we're going to, uh, the enforcement agencies will enforce. But uh, the good news is that overwhelmingly people are, uh, are following the rules and getting the card. And that's great news. Do you think Fraser Health should go to court then and shut this place down? Fraser Health's going to do what it needs to do to deal with it. They've, uh, they, uh, I understand, took some action yesterday, and they will. Uh, they'll have to follow. They may have to follow that up with more action, and uh, that's what you'd expect them to do. So the measures that have been implemented over the last month, things like the vaccine card and others, are they working? I think they are. Uh, you're seeing uh, uh, vaccination itself is working. This is largely now a pandemic of the unvaccinated. And then just look at the data this week and data summary this week, age adjusted, 53 times more likely to die if you're unvaccinated, 56 more times likely to be hospitalized. We've brought about 29 uh, critical care patients with COVID-19 from the north to southern uh, health authorities, Vancouver Island and the Metro Vancouver ones. All None of them are fully vaccinated. So this is a period where we need to do everything we can to uh, encourage vaccination and to support vaccination. Next week, next Tuesday, in long-term care and assisted living, all employees will be required to be vaccinated to provide more protection there. And, of course, we're doing third doses for all residents. So, yes, we're taking the steps. You see this, I think, in, um, in the modeling that has been done and the data that's been presented. But it's still a huge challenge. And if you're unvaccinated in B.C., you are at risk and a significant risk to COVID-19 in a way that people have not been throughout the pandemic. It's time to get vaccinated. The long-term care piece that you mentioned there, mandatory vaccinations, in light of the report that we heard from BC Seniors Advocate this week, is that a piece that you think perhaps should have been put in place months ago? Because clearly not enough people were getting vaccinated if they were staff. Well, actually, they, they were. If you look at what happened to outbreaks in long-term care with vaccination, on January 15th, there were 49 outbreaks in the long-term care and assisted living. By uh, a month later, after that major vaccination, which was first in long-term care, there were only a handful. There are some now, and we're uh, dealing with those, and the outcomes, though, are nothing like as severe. In long-term care, um, the report uh, praised the strong actions that the government had taken, that 
the provincial health officer had taken in BC. That's why outcomes were better here than other jurisdictions. Although if you're a family member who lost someone here, I don't think you're worried too much about Ontario or Quebec or anywhere else. You're worried about what happened here. All of the actions taken to increase staffing, 5,000 workers hired in the last year to to um, 1,600 of them to support infection control. We've taken some major steps, but this is a vicious virus that doesn't care about our discussions and our talk and everything else. It lives to transmit. And so we got to keep taking the steps we need to take. This week, that step will be mandatory vaccination and long-term care and assisted living, plus third doses, booster doses for residents, plus a high-dose flu zone uh, um, uh, vaccinations for residents to protect residents in long-term care, not just so that they can uh, get through healthy, get through COVID-19, but have more normal circumstances in long-term care as well, with visits and other activities. And that's what we're—that's the approach we're taking. Why are we still losing so many people, though? Because it does it not make you uncomfortable when you see that the number of people that we lose on a daily basis? Uh, uh, more than uncomfortable. Um, it's the first uh, first number we look at, and it's a significant situation. I just—I to- think I told you. There's really two categories of people. People are hugely vulnerable, and that's people in long-term care. Uh, people who are already have many other pre-existing conditions. And so even a mild case of COVID-19 can have a profound effect, and we see that, and we're um, unbelievably every day focused on that question. But in addition, what we're seeing is younger people. Yesterday, in amongst the people who passed away yesterday, was someone in their 30s. And overwhelmingly, that group of people is unvaccinated. And what I, I'd say to everybody is, you know, um, you know, people right now, we've got quite a few people in the peace who've come down. And this is what we do in B.C. We support one another. It's a problem in the Peace River region. We're using our hospitals on Vancouver Island and lower mainland to support people. But you're talking about individuals who are in critical care with COVID-19. They are sick and now 900 kilometers away from home. And we're going to provide them with the best care we can. But there are other people right now living in the north, especially, but in other regions who are walking around unvaccinated. We don't want them to be there in two or three weeks. And that's why we need to get everyone as much as possible vaccinated. I'm happy to say it's more than 88 percent of eligible people in B.C., which is pretty good, right? right. Eight out of every nine people. But, but you know what would be better? Nine out of every nine. And what about teachers? What about school staff? This is something that's sort of been talked about a lot over the last few weeks. BCTF says they will support this. Why not just do this? So the Provincial Health Office has um, mandatory vaccination orders for health care, which is October uh, long-term care for October 12th and all of health care October 26th. And that's based on risk. We just talked about um, a report that talked about the almost 1,000 people who passed away in long-term care. That's a high level of risk that we don't see elsewhere. The other kind of vaccine mandates that are being put in place, which is the one in the public service this week where we're the direct employer, those are employer-led mandates to make uh, workplaces safer for both workers and for, uh, in case of schools, children, in the case of post-secondary students, in the case of of many private sector employees, customers. And so we did that in the direct public service. A lot of crown corporations have done it. We're working with school boards who are the employer in this case, of uh, teachers and support staff to uh, support them in, in making their decisions as well. Uh, these assist us, but I can tell you what also assists us, the decision of people every day to get vaccinated, and we've got to continue to take steps to do that.
would you rather at this point than they kind of see the train coming down the tracks here and get this done? Well, I think uh, what, the reason people have been brought together, all the partners, is to make sure everyone has the evidence and, and uh, start to move towards that. But, you know, we are talking that the, these are challenging decisions, right? The one in long-term care has implications, for example, uh, for, the, for staffing, uh, and, uh, this is, and they're real, right? On Tuesday evening, if you're unvaccinated in long-term care, you haven't had your first dose, you'll be put, put on leave of absence without pay, which is significant significant for the people you care for, significant for you. So we don't take these decisions lightly, but the ones in long-term care and assisted living, the ones in in, uh, broader health care, those are provincial health orders for a reason because of the level of risk in those settings. The others are important too, and we're encouraging employers to uh, consider that everywhere, including and especially in schools. All right, Minister Dix, thank you for your time. Hey, anytime. Take care. This is Mornings with Simi. There is no better way for us to head into the weekend on Mornings with Simi than a conversation with one of my favorite people in the whole wide world. Yes, he is back. It is Carson Arthur, outdoor design and lifestyle expert. Good morning, Carson. Good morning. How could I not be smiling after homegrown tomatoes <laughs> and an introduction like that? I am, I'm glowing today. I know. And tomatoes, boy, I had a great crop of tomatoes this year. But now we have to think about our fall garden care. And can we talk about trees today? Yeah, you know what? It is such an important conversation. New studies are coming out about urban tree numbers, and they're going down. And what that means is homeowners are taking trees out, and they're not replacing them. And that's a little bit scary, considering trees are our frontline defense when it comes to climate change. Yeah, that is a little scary, But because I wanted to ask you about planting one, because I've bought, we have an apple festival out here every fall. I bought an apple Mm -hmm. tree from them. I'm picking it up next week. What do I need to know about planting this apple tree, Carson? So roots go down, branches go up. (laughs) The truth of the matter is this is a great time of year to actually purchase plants from garden centers and to put them in the ground. You see, the temperatures aren't hot. In fact, you're getting a little bit of a cold splash right now. And that is good for keeping your plants dormant, your trees dormant. So when you plant your apple tree, I like to fill the hole full of water. When you put the tree in, you want the water pouring over the sides. But what happens is as the water evaporates, it sucks out all the air pockets from around the roots. That's really beneficial going into colder months. Then you might want to consider giving a little bit of fertilizer, something with a high middle number. That middle number is going to encourage root development while the temperatures are still warm. So the tree is going to get better established in its space before it goes completely dormant. Okay, I wrote all that down. Good to know. But I have a bunch of existing trees too, and now you're making me think that, okay, I need to make sure they're going to be okay over the winter. Yeah, trees at this time of year really need a little extra help. We're seeing a lot more fungal infections and, uh, yes, I'm going to say insects, but more invasive species of insects infesting our trees. So, yes, the first thing you want to do is make sure you cut the grass underneath your tree nice and short. And you want to get the grass that's actually closest to the trunk of the tree. That's where insects and fungus like to overwinter. And you want to do this with your weed whacker or a hedge trimmer. Just make sure you get one with a good guard. Now, I actually have one that I got from Lowe's. It's a Craftsman model. And I love it because it's got a wheel in the front. And the wheel turns. This prevents that high-spinning twine from actually chopping at the bark. If you cut up the bark at the base of the trunk, 
you're actually inviting all kinds of parasites, all kinds of things that will break down the health of your tree right at the ground level, which is so important to avoid. So cut the grass, make sure it's nice and tidy around the bottom of your tree, and that's going to help prevent anything from overwintering there. Okay. And also, I guess we have to remove um, like the black spots on the, on the, the leaves that have those on there? Yeah, I'm getting a lot of emails and pictures from people across Canada about black tar spot on their maple trees. That's those big dots. They look like kind of, they're about the size of a dime. and They're black on the leaf. Yeah. Now, this doesn't, this doesn't kill the tree, but it certainly doesn't help the tree's ability to generate energy because it needs nice, healthy leaves to generate energy through chlorophyll and photosynthesis. So the black spot, while it doesn't kill the tree, it, it, it kind of inhibits it. It's almost like giving your cell phone battery only half a charge. It doesn't really end the job, but it doesn't really give it as much as it really needs. So by getting rid of those leaves completely, you don't want them under the tree at all. So rake them up, get the leaf blowers out, remove the leaves, do not put those in the compost. You want to clear them out completely. And depending on where you are, municipality, you can either burn them or put them in the leaf bags or dispose of them ethically, but you do not want to keep those leaves around because that's what's going to prevent reinfection next year. Okay. So that, that's a really important point that you just mentioned there. So if you take, if you have the leaves that have those spots on them, you don't put them in the compost. Is that because it can infect everything? Well, they won't really infect everything, but there are certain species that are impacted by it. The truth is if you can get your composter to over 120 degrees Fahrenheit, then you can kill off all the fungus. But who's really going out there with a, a thermometer measuring exactly. how hot their compost <laughs> yes. pile is? Uh, That's so gross. It's better safe than sore. Yeah, right? <laughs> out there with a the meat thermometer checking it. No, right. it doesn't no. work. <laughs> uh, so how do I know? So I sh- should I be trimming my trees at this time of year too? Well, again, going back to that cell phone analogy, if you think of the leaves as little solar panels, and each one of those little solar panels are trying to generate as much energy into the roots as possible, If you leave them alone on the tree, no pruning at this time of year, they get the opportunity to generate as much energy as possible, which means next spring the tree will have more growth and be healthier. If you start pruning now, you end that cycle. That said, take out the dead wood. If you've got a dead branch or something that's going to be a safety concern, if we get another ice storm this year or heavy slush, those branches come down, they hurt cars, they hurt people, get the dead wood out. We also know that deadwood is a perfect opportunity for insects and fungus to get in. So remove it, cut it off nice and clean, flush to the trunk of the tree, and your tree will be healthier and happier as a result. Okay. See, I'd never thought about fall tree care before. It feels like we talk about everything else for the yard in the fall and the winter, but not trees. Well, with forest fires and invasive species and, and English ivy killing off our trees, like trees need more help than ever before. So It's a topic today, but it's going to be one we're going to do for the next three to four years at least. Okay. And now what about like removing, I don't know, bugs and things on the trees? Bugs and things. Yeah. We're seeing more and more invasive species coming up from the U.S. And it's not their fault. They just happen to be coming from warmer climates north. So we're seeing things like gypsy moths. And gypsy moths are a real big problem this year in Ontario and in Manitoba. They're working their way across. Gypsy moth egg cases, they kind of look like a butterscotchy yellow color, and they are attached to lower branches. And if you can remove those cases, just take a walk around, and if you can remove them gently with a flat-headed screwdriver or a pair of pruners, that will prevent any of the, those larvae from hatching next spring and going up into the trees. 
Okay, th- now I'm going to have to go home and inspect all my trees, Carson. <laughs> it's, a, it's a good thing. For the health of the tree, it's so important to do that. So does it matter what type of tree I plant? Like you were talking about how not enough people are doing this right now. We need to plant more trees and yards. Any Would any type of tree be good? To be honest, yeah, absolutely any type of tree. As long as it has leaves or even needles, it's still generating energy through photosynthesis and that energy generation involves removing CO2 from the air. So obviously there's going to be certain trees that are better than others, but any type of tree is absolutely going to help the situation. So this is a good time. Go plant. It's good. Trees okay. are good. I'm going to do this. My favorite, personally, I have two magnolias in my yard and I love my magnolias, but these are the evergreen magnolias. Do you like those? Right. I do. Uh, I know oh, they don't. Now you're of- going to ruin it for me. What's the butt? I heard <laughs> it in not, your voice. I'm- <laughs> I do love them. They're a nice tree, you know, and for the whole seven days that they flower, they're fantastic. Uh, <laughs> but the rest of the year, it's kind of like, beautiful. oh, okay. No, that's not true. <laughs> they look beautiful all year round. That's why they're there. Yeah. Oh, Carson. Yeah, okay. okay. <laughs> We're going to have to have you come back soon, and that way you can take a lot of listener calls and questions, okay? Yeah, absolutely. Anytime you're ready for me, you invite. Okay, and where can people get a hold of you? Because I know they're going to want to ask you questions anyway. Yeah, a lot of people have been reaching me on Facebook. So Carson Arthur on Facebook or um, at my garden center, carsonsgardenandmarket.com. Will do. Thanks, Carson. My pleasure. Thank you. Carson Arthur, outdoor design and lifestyle expert that we regularly like to check in with. And I had not thought about tree care, but that's exactly what I'm going to do today. Go home and check out all my trees.